The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We can all certainly state the world has changed and many of those changes for wildlife have happened in just the past 7 to 10 years. Elephants down by 70%, the extinction of the northern white rhino in the wild, pangolins, African gray parrots, lions. Of the many conversations over the past few years and several episodes of this program, one is that CITES is outdated, lost its relevance, and has no teeth, that it is the very trade in endangered and threatened species that is causing them to slip ever nearer the point of extinction. On the face of it, that would seem a compelling argument. That being said, however, what many people and nations fail to understand is what CITES is, what it is mandated to do, can be expected to do, and what it can't do. My guest today, world-renowned conservationist Dr. Ronald Orenstein, has attended and been a key participant in CITES since 1987. He is on the board of the Species Survival Network and is intimately familiar with the inner workings of CITES and the elephant and rhino working groups that craft the protections and the proposals about trade in ivory and rhino horn. In his book, Ivory, Horn, and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis, he delves deeply into the human and CITES history that has brought us to the very edge of losing these charismatic species in which their slaughter today is at an all-time high. Dr. Orenstein today is going to guide us through the mechanism that is CITES, why it is unique, and especially now, the critical actions it did take this year. And as citizens and nations, we need to understand what we can do within the frameworks we have to support all the efforts toward participating in conserving and protecting our wild world. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Ellie. It's a pleasure to have you here. I've been reading your book. It's fascinating. And today we're going to talk a lot about what is available in that book. Uh, Ivory, Rhino, the title, I've already messed it up. But um, our listeners, please do pick up this book. It's available anywhere on Kindle. And there is a chapter, uh, chapter six, that is specifically dedicated to CITES. So we're going to talk today about what CITES is. So, Ron, let's start with, 
I don't, it, this is going to be the whole show, actually. A general understanding of what CITES is. You highlighted a key point to me that CITES is a treaty. Tell us why this is important to remember and why it's unique in today's world. Well, first of all, I think it is very important to understand that CITES is not a body, an organization, and CITES is not a law. CITES is an international agreement, and as such, it is limited, like any international agreement, by the fact that countries have to buy into it, have to sign up to it, and have to agree to observe its terms, and if they don't, there may be limited things that you can do about that. So, an international treaty requires countries to say, okay, we would normally be able, as sovereign states, to do anything we like. When we sign a treaty, any kind of treaty, NATO for argument's sake, we are agreeing to give up or subordinate some of our sovereign rights in the interest of cooperation among nations to accomplish whatever it is the treaty is for. Now, CITES is that way too. So when CITES was negotiated back in the early 1970s, one of the issues was how much power do countries really want to give up in order to be part of this participatory mechanism, as it were. Now, let me just take you back. Um, CITES was first signed back in, in 1973 at a conference in Washington, D.C., and at that time, um, only some, I think it was 88, I believe, countries signed the original treaty. Today, there's, I believe, 183 countries that have joined CITES. And the reason they have is because any country that is trading in wildlife, and that includes countries that want to trade in wildlife, and countries that want to protect their wildlife against trade and various flavors in between, have to be, they have discovered that they have had to be part of this international mechanism, this process, otherwise they may find themselves losing all kinds of revenue, losing cooperation on conservation matters. To give an example, there's only one country that ever dropped out of CITES, and this was the United Arab Emirates. And when the United Arab Emirates dropped out within three years, they rejoined because they discovered that they couldn't carry on the kind of wildlife trade they wanted to carry on outside of this international trade mechanism and conservation mechanism that was set up to regulate it. So there has been a tremendous pressure over the years for more and more and more countries to join CITES. There are really very few countries in the world today that are not members. Uh, these are mostly small island states in the Pacific, things like that aren't much engaged in trade. So, okay, we have this treaty, this document that everybody signed. So the first thing is we said that an international treaty is countries agreeing to cooperate to achieve some aim. So what was the aim in this case? Well, that's set out. If you look at the text of CITES, the, the text actually says what it is. It says that the purpose of CITES, and they don't say maybe quite these many words, is to protect certain species of wildlife, both animals and plants, against over-exploitation through international trade. And th then there needs to be some regulation in order to do that. Now, the word over-exploitation, I think, is quite an important word. 
because this treaty was written in the late 60s, early 70s, it didn't use some of the buzzwords we use today. Today we talk about sustainability. Overexploitation is kind of another way of saying unsustainability. CITES was never intended to stop all trade in wildlife. If it had been intended to do that, it would never have been signed because a lot of countries that do trade in wildlife, including plants and including fish, would never have signed on. I mean, you, you, it had to be something that those first 88 countries felt they could sign. And so what it did is to say, okay, you can trade in wildlife as long as you can demonstrate that when you do this, you are not harming the species involved. If you can do that, then there is a mechanism that is set up under CITES that says you can trade. If you can't do that, then basically you cannot trade, or at least you cannot trade without making certain changes to the way you do conservation, the way you are protecting this species, the way you are regulating the trade. So it's a deal, uh, if I can put it that way. And I think that's a very good way to put it, and it also, in what you just uh, covered with us is in, defeat the argument that si- there needs to be a conservation organization because in by regulating trade then it is left to the nations to build up the sustainability to use that word whether it's through utilization or consumption or leaving it alone to conserve so that they can trade and we had talked earlier that um why trade is important, and you you alluded to it just now, that a lot of money is involved. You used the example of the United Arab Emirates. They lost a lot of money when they couldn't trade by stepping out of CITES. Help us understand a little bit more um, that how the, how this is legally binding on volunteer members. Maybe explain what a member is. Okay. Let, let me let me first of all. When I say that there's no need for an organization, uh, let me just back up on that slightly. There is a secretariat. There is the the CITES secretariat in Geneva, which administers the treaty. But to give you an example, um, when the treaty was first being written, there were separate number of separate drafts that circulated. There was one from the United States. There was one from Kenya. There was one that was done from IUCN. And in one of the very early drafts, there was a body that was set up of scientists and experts and that all the decisions about what species were supposed to be listed under CITES would have been made by this body of experts, this technical committee or whatever they were going to call it. And that didn't make it into the final treaty because of this issue of state sovereignty. Countries said, no, no, we don't want to hand that power over to a central body. We want to retain that power for ourselves. And now, like that or not, And, I mean, you could make arguments both ways as to which would have been better. That was the only way you could get it passed. And um, what that means is that when species are listed on CITES today, they're not listed because a body or something called CITES decides to list a species or delist a species or transfer it from one appendix to another. It's because a country or one or more countries has come forward made a proposal to the other countries to say, we would like to list this species, and those other countries have considered it and voted on it. And as a result, I mean, the the biggest problem with that, probably from a conservationist point of view, is that it's kind of ad hoc. Um, 
it's not because somebody is surveying the entire animal plant kingdoms and saying carefully, well, which species really needs this kind of treatment? It's just because country X, for one reason or another, has decided to put this species forward. Either they have their own interests or they've been encouraged to do so by some conservation organization or sometimes a trade organization. Some some of the proposals are to remove protection, not add it. So, uh, that's in effect why you don't have this central power because frankly it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been accepted and i think one of the things you have to understand anyone who's sitting there and saying oh well cites why doesn't it do this why doesn't it do that it's because this is international law and you can't shove international decisions down the throats of a lot of countries in the world who don't want to accept them you have to negotiate you have to uh make compromises. That's just the way it works. And you couldn't possibly have it work any other way and have countries buy into it. Now, CITES actually has got more teeth than most other treaties of this type. And partly, and this is ironic, is because it is a trade treaty. If you have a a treaty such as, let's say, the World Heritage Convention or the Ramsar Convention, uh, which asks you to protect certain areas within your own state, Uh, If you don't do it, or if you don't do it adequately, but the most that can happen is you may lose the listing. In the case of the World Heritage Convention, you may also lose some some funding. But with CITES, you have the situation in which every trade that takes place, because CITES only deals with trade across international boundaries. It doesn't deal with domestic trade at all. It involves two countries. And if one country doesn't like what the other country is doing, it can say something about it. So... That means that there is a bit of a check and a balance system in there. If a country puts out a fraudulent CITES permit, the importing country may be able to say, no, we won't accept it and and send it back and say, uh, you know, here's why we can't accept this. So that does give it some power. The other reasons that CITES has some power that other treaties don't have, I'd say two reasons. Reason number one is that CITES operates on voting. I mean, I said you can't shove things down the throats of other countries. Well, to some extent you can, because all the decisions that are made in CITES are voted on, and you have to have a two-thirds majority for any substantive issue of the countries that are present at the meeting voting for something in order to pass it. Now, compare that to, say, the Convention of Biological Diversity, which is a, a, the big umbrella convention today, the big umbrella treaty, convention and treaty mean the same thing. Uh, governing conservation on probably a worldwide scale. Everything that that treaty does has to be decided by consensus. That means you have to have 100% of the countries that are in the treaty agreeing to any piece of language, any decision that is made. Well, of course, you can imagine what it would be like if no law could pass the United States Congress unless every single congressman and every single senator agreed with every single word it contained. Nothing would ever happen, or the things that would happen would be so bland because they'd have to appeal to everybody that they wouldn't be worth much. Now, that's a problem a lot of treaties have. CITES gets to vote. And so you can actually say, even though Country X would like to, for argument's sake, trade in ivory, we're not going to let them. And if they bound to the treaty and required to reserve it, then they have to keep that that decision. So CITES has strength. The other big strength of CITES is that CITES allows people like me, and I'm not saying me personally, but I mean observers who are not 
part of country delegations to go to the meetings and take part in every way except voting. We can speak. We can join working groups. Uh, we assist in draft, drafting sometimes text so that conservation organizations can go to the meeting and actually make a difference. They can actually be heard. They can actually make recommendations. And they're often listened to very carefully. So that combination of circumstances makes CITES very flexible, very powerful, I believe, and very useful. And if you tried to produce a treaty like that today, I guarantee you, you would never in a million years get it passed. It would not happen. Now, you asked me about why do countries buy in what they have to do. Yes. International law. There is, a, there is a convention, another convention, we're getting involved in this, called the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties that talks about what interpreting what treaties are. And countries have signed up to that, which I think about every country in the world, I believe, has. That means that when they sign a treaty, they are obliging themselves to follow the text of that treaty. They are required to incorporate that text or the the duties prescribed by that text into their own domestic law. So for argument's sake, if the treaty says we've put a certain species on appendix one of the treaty, so no commercial trade is allowed, you being a country have to pass a law or alter your existing law to make sure that you have banned the trade in that, the international trade in that species. That's called implementing the treaty. Now, CITES also makes a lot of other decisions which are called resolutions or decisions. And they, there's some way they're more like regulations, but what they are is they are less binding. Countries can decide not to follow them if they don't want to, and in some cases they don't. But again, that is limited by the fact that when they're trading with other countries that do observe those resolutions, they might have to adjust their behavior to make sure that they can get their exports or imports handled handled um, without trouble. So, that, so that, let me interject here. That That's an important point. You've mentioned several important points. I'm trying to keep up with them all. Um, in terms of not choosing to do what CITES has said, I believe this is called taking out a reservation. No, no. All right, let me explain that. It, okay. it, it, that's a complicated thing. A reservation is... In international law generally, it means that when you sign a treaty, you're saying, yes, we agree to all of these, but we don't agree to this part. So we're just notifying you as we join that we're not going to observe this part. Now, CITES doesn't actually allow that. CITES does not have any provision to make what is called a general reservation. So you can say, we're not going to follow Article 4 of the treaty for argument's sake. The only kind of reservations you can make under CITES are reservations to species listings. So if a species is listed on the appendices or transferred, say, from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1. Every country that is a member has 90 days after that decision is made to enter a reservation which says we will not be bound by that listing. Uh, they can also do it if they first, if a country is joining the treaty for the first time, it's got 90 days to enter which species it will reserve against. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they can trade. So help because, us understand how this applies well, to well, let, N- Namibia and, and Zimbabwe and the ivory. Well, let me explain. Uh, again, of course, um, when these countries 
took out reservations against African elephant when the ivory ban was passed in 1989. Well, at that point, Namibia wasn't independent yet. So when it became independent, it also took out a reservation. That meant that they could trade. But the problem is that in order to trade, you've got to find another country to trade with. You need a customer. So, but if other countries haven't taken out reservations, then you can't trade with anybody who's part of the treaty. If you can find a non-party state, a state that hasn't joined the treaty, like, say, North Korea, yes, you could trade. But in order to trade within CITES, within the set of countries that are members of CITES, which, remember, is 183 countries, it's most of the world, you have to have a reservation both in the importing country and in the exporting country. So, for example, Norway trades whale meat to Japan because both Norway and Japan have reservations to the listings of great whales on the CITES appendices. But when Namibia or Zimbabwe took out reservations against the African elephant going to Appendix 1, there were no marketing countries, no customer countries that also took reservations. So they couldn't use their reservation. They didn't have anybody to sell it to. Okay, so help us understand a little more how this works with international law. They're both international law. It's just that the mechanism for making any changes, and remember, these are not changes to the treaty text. The text is pretty much there inviolate. They're changes to, for instance, what species are listed in appendices or changes to resolutions, things of that sort. Uh, those uh, can be are done by voting in CITES. They're done by consensus elsewhere. Now, remember that treaties and bind countries. They don't bind individuals. I'll give you an example. If I were to be caught smuggling a piece of ivory from the United States into Canada where I live, what I would be violating are the laws of the United States and Canada that they were required to pass because they were members of CITES and were under an obligation to pass laws. CITES decides that, that the African elephant is on Appendix 1 and that therefore you can't trade, you can't trade in ivory without uh, under, except under very special circumstances, uh, the countries that have signed up to the treaty then change their domestic laws to say, if we catch anybody trying to do this, it's an offense. And as a matter of fact, countries can pass tougher laws. I mean, when countries agreed to give up certain powers, shall we say, by joining the treaty, what they were giving up was, was the ability to have weaker laws than CITES, that CITES requires. What they were not giving up was the right to pass tougher laws than what CITES requires, which any country... That's an important point. Oh, it is. That's called a stricter domestic measure. And for instance, the United States has, has quite a few. There are, there are provisions in the Endangered Species Act. There are also provisions in the laws of the European Union that will refuse to allow import of certain wildlife specimens that CITES would allow. That's called a stricter measure. Now, they can't do the reverse. If CITES says, no, you can't, the United States can't say, well, we're going to do it anyway. So but, I would say an example of that is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's recent statement that they will not allow the importation of lions from canned hunting. Exactly. The compromise they reached on lions and sighties, which I, I would have to agree was not a very good compromise from, from a conservation point of view, allowed those hunts to continue. But when the United States says, okay, that's fine, but we're not going to be part of that, they are passing... Uh, what is called in CITES a stricter domestic measure, a law of the United States or a, or a regulatory decision of the United States that says, we don't care what CITES has decided, we're not going to allow this to happen here. What would be some of the backlash 
specific I, of the backlash with this lion decision is South Africa, and there's been poaching in the lion breeding camps, and the Professional Breeders Association is coming out and saying they don't want to conserve. It's like anything else. If you decide to bar the import of any good, it doesn't have to be wildlife, from some country, that country is certainly going to either try to take retaliatory action or try and persuade you to change your mind or come up with an argument saying, here's why you ought to change your law. Now, one of the commonest arguments that gets made is if you don't let us trade in this species and therefore we're not earning any money from it, we don't have any incentive to conserve it, so we may as well just kill them all or destroy their habitat or whatever. Or the people who live with these animals and have to deal with the difficulties they cause. And let's face it, if you're living with elephants, it can be a very dangerous situation. Um, they're not going to uh, they're not going to see any benefit coming from these animals because you can't trade them. They're not going to support conservation. So you're you're actually harming the conservation effort in our country. And that is the argument South Africa has repeatedly made about this sort of situation. Now, the best answer to that is is to say, well, that's really not how it works. First of all, there is no proof necessarily that the revenue that this sort of trade generates is going to conservation. I mean, uh, I don't know of anything that says that the canned lion hunters are, are handing their money over to conservation of lions in the wild. I don't think they're doing that at all. Well, they've actually uh, come out and said, no, they won't, which is different than rhino breeders. Rhino well, breeders but, are interested in the conservation of the species. Well, yes, but rhino breeders, uh, to come back again, most of the people who are breeding rhinos are very, very wealthy people. And you know, if you own 4,000 rhinos, you're not a poor person. Again, they would like to make money out of what they are doing. Those that would like to sell them. There are the private rhino breeders that are interested specifically in maintaining the ecosystem function and right. the rhino as a species in the wild right. versus but, those who want to sell them and okay. wanted to have a trade in but rhino horn. There's a difference between maintaining a population in a wild area where they're at a normal population density, they're in an area where they originally were found, and they're living the life of a normal rhino, that's fine, I'm great with that. But when you've got 4,000 rhinos, you're, you're a farmer. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not what you're doing. And so you that's getting into a different sort of argument. But, Absolutely, and that's a discussion we can have at another time. Right now, we need to um, head into a quick little break. As our listeners can tell, this is a riveting conversation, so stick with us. We're going to get into a whole lot more of what CITES is, what it can do, and the way forward. So we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Dr. Ron Orenstein. So, um, if you've been with us for the first half of this program, you'll see that we've had a very lively discussion of what CITES is, and talking about why it's important, critical, and the mechanism that it puts in place upon international law, and that it is a treaty versus some other treaties that um, require consensus versus voting members. So if you missed the first half, please do go back and listen to it. And my guest is, as I said, Ron Orenstein, whose book is Ivory, Ivory, Rhino, no. and Blood. And Ivory, wh- excuse me, I'll stop you, Ellie. The book is Ivory, Horn, and Blood. Okay, I will... I will edit that out. And his book, Ivory, Horn, and Blood, and uh, the subtitle, Leading to the Poaching Crisis Today. So what we've been talking about is what the mechanism of CITES has put into place. But CITES is about much more than just species listing. That's only one part. And we tend to focus on the charismatic animals. And there's more than 30,000 species under CITES, from insects to reptiles to trees and flowers. So, Ron, help us understand that when we focus on the megafauna versus the lesser-known species, how does it help or harm both CITES efforts and conservation efforts? Well, all right, first of all, when you say 30,000 species, that's, my audience is going to think, well, which ones? Well, perhaps I should clarify by saying 20,000 of those 30,000 species are orchids. You can list entire families on CITES, and the entire orchid family is listed uh, on the grounds that it's easier to tell if something is an orchid than it is to tell which kind of orchid it is, particularly since orchids are often traded without flowers. So the CITES parties felt that it was better to just put all the orchids on the appendices, whether they're in trade or not, because there are thousands of species that aren't, and thereby 
if something comes across and it's an ORCID, you know it's CITES covered. Uh, the customs officers know, the enforcement officers know. So the ORCID family is enormous, and that's what bulks out a lot of the appendices. But still... There's there a lot are, of other enormous, quote-unquote, families that, not that are listed, fact, and, and, and they became very important at, well, at CITES this year. Uh, yes, all parrots, for example, with the exception of um, budgerigars, cockatiels, and Indian ringneck parrots. Um, all primates, uh, all cats are listed, um, all um, arrow poison frogs, all hummingbirds. So uh, these are cases in which it was felt that it was more important to have them all there than to have a few and have to try and tell them apart. In fact, CITES kind of set that up itself because there are two reasons you can list a species on CITES. One is uh, because the species itself needs CITES protection. And the other for Appendix 2 is that it may not need CITES protection, but it looks so much like or is so similar to a species that is listed that if you don't list both of them, you could create some real problems. Not just customs officers making mistakes, but uh, traders who are unscrupulous simply changing the name on a label. Say, okay, well, instead of saying it's this species which is on CITES, we'll call it this other species which isn't and send it through and, and nobody will uh, will stop us. So in that case, you can put what are called look-alike species on CITES. And in fact, I, I should say, I realize you asked me a question about other than listings, but I should make it clear that Appendix 2, which is where most of the species on CITES are, doesn't even require a species to be threatened. In fact, it's kind of interesting that the only place the word endangered occurs in the entire text of CITES is the title. It doesn't occur anywhere in the treaty text. The point is that an Appendix 2 species can be listed for protection purely on the grounds that the parties believe that if they don't list it, it could get into trouble in future. Okay, so, you- so that, that, this leads me to a question. that I didn't realize that, but I have never read the entire treaty of CITES, (laughs) like I'm assuming you have because you've been a part and party to so many of, in crafting so many of the proposals. So, um, (laughs) we mentioned something in the first half, endangered species, that endangered is only in the title, and threatened is is a term that, so this brings in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Endangered Species Act, and you uh, in, alluded to this earlier that it was um, part of the first incorporation in Washington. Can you help us understand a bit more how our, how our the United States Endangered Species Act and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is a part or works or collaborates and is incorporated into CITES? Okay, well, first of all, CITES, the idea for CITES, first got floated in the 1960s. It was uh, in the early 1960s, the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, um, brought up the idea at its meeting in, back in 1963, saying we really do need an international agreement of this type. Uh, one of the big issues back then, not so much today, was the trade in spotted cats, leopard skin coats and things like that. Um, and in 1969, the Endangered Species Act in the form that it existed back then in the United States, of course, it's changed a lot since then, actually included language that directed the government to convene an international meeting of government ministers, and I'll quote, they conclude, it said, a binding international convention on the conservation of endangered species. So the, the 
early version of the Endangered Species Act required the U.S. government to get other countries together and say, let's put together what became CITES. Now, once CITES was signed, of course, then CITES contains text that requires countries who are members to do certain things. And one of them is to make sure that they have penalties in their laws uh, against people who are trading illegally in in these species, um, that they have laws extending the protection the treaty affords to them domestically. As I explained, if you want to apply a law to an individual person, that has to be a law of a country, not an international law. An international law tells countries what they're supposed to do. Countries then do it, and what they're supposed to do as part of that is to make laws creating offenses and other things that bind their citizens or, or, or visitors to the country. So today, the Endangered Species Act, in part, because of course it also involves a tremendous amount of other issues and internal matters in the United States, is what they call implementing legislation. That means that the requirements of CITES are turned into United States law through portions of the Endangered Species Act. So uh, that's what they call implementing legislation. So today, uh, that is the way that the interaction occurs legally between the United States and CITES. Now, of course, again, the Endangered Species Act is not required, for instance, only to list species that CITES lists. It can list a lot of other species. First of all, species that are endangered for other reasons than trade, because CITES doesn't cover those. Domestic species, native species to the United States, of course, the Hawaiian species would be a very good example, particularly there's more Hawaiian species on the Endangered Species Act than all other American species put together, in, 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 as far as I'm aware. And uh, those are not traded. So CITES doesn't list any of them. Their problem is habitat loss and, and uh, spread of disease. So this, so this brings us to your point of, um, the mes- of what CITES can do mm-hmm. and what it can't do. And now we're getting into that little part about stronger domestic measures and well, i believe at this particular cop 17 a lot of what ha- a lot of these lesser known species were uplisted which um, will make a huge difference in terms of law enforcement or the and what cites focused on was law well, enforcement where me, previously me, it didn't really go there let me make uh, a perhaps a clarification again stricter domestic laws are laws that CITES does not pro- doesn't tell countries you have to pass a stricter law. It says Correct. if you want to, go ahead. Now, the kinds of decisions that are made at CITES meetings have nothing to do with that. Uh, they are decisions that are going to be agreed on by all countries, and they set the floor. They say, here is the minimum that you have to do. If you want to do more, that's for you to consider individually as countries, but you have to do this much. Now, there are two different strands of decision-making, shall we say, in CITES. And in fact, when you go to a CITES meeting, the meeting splits into two big groups. One is called Committee 1, and one is called Committee 2. Not not very exciting names. But Committee 1 primarily deals with changes to the CITES appendices. Now, the appendices are the lists of animals and plants that CITES applies to. And, and there's three appendixes. There are two there are, and three. There are, there are three um, for species lists. But Appendix 3 is is kind of uh, different from the other two because Appendix 3 is a unilateral mechanism. Any country 
can put a species on Appendix 3 all by itself. It doesn't need to vote. It doesn't need to go to the other parties. And really, it only affects trade in species from that country. So for argument's sake, if a, if a country lists like Costa Rica lists toucans, I believe they, had, they did, on Appendix 3, it means that any toucan coming out of Costa Rica for international trade needs a CITES permit, but toucans from any other country only need a notification that they're not from Costa Rica. Now, and there's no voting on Appendix 3. That's just an individual thing that countries can do. In effect, they're going to the rest of the world and saying, guys, we need some help. Uh, we, we need international cooperation to protect uh, these species that we have. Now, Appendix 1 and Appendix 2 are the ones that require a vote. And um, the difference between them is rather technical. CITES works on a permit system. The whole thing operates on whether or not you, have, you can issue a permit to export a specimen or, or import it. Now, if a species is on Appendix 2, that's the one that has most of the species and that allows trade, you need an export permit, and that can only be granted under certain circumstances. Uh, it, first of all, if it showed the specimen was acquired legally, if it's uh, a living specimen, it has to be properly treated. Um, but the big thing is that you have to show that allowing this trade is not going to harm the population of the species. Now, every country that joins CITES is required to set up two bodies. One is called, they, they're set up, for instance, in the United States, they're set up within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. One is called the Management Authority, and one is called the Scientific Authority. Now, if I want to export an Appendix 2 specimen from the United States, I have to go to the Management Authority and apply for an export permit. Now, the management authority is then supposed to go to the scientific authority and say, make a finding for me. It's what's called a finding of no detriment or an NDF, a non-detriment finding, telling me whether if I issue this permit, it is going to cause problems for this species. Now, the reason you have two separate bodies is because they have to be independent. You don't want a situation where the management authority knocks on the scientific authority's door and say, we want you to issue the, the finding for us because we want to issue this permit. They're supposed to be equal so the scientific authority can turn to the management authority and say no, if that's the situation. And so, an example of this would be when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife added lions to the endangered species well, list. Well, no, not really. And, and, the, and the caveat there, as be long as it does not, or as long as it, ben they can be hunted or killed or exported as long as it does not contribute or um, does contribute to the conservation of the species. Well, that's that tricky. Really, that's, all right, that's a little different. What we are talking about is an export permit. So the United States can only issue export permit for species from the United States. If another country is exporting a, a, a species to the United States, like lions, that's different. The scientific authority may be asked to make a finding of whether they feel that the export permit coming from the country that the lion came from was correctly issued and properly issued, and they can say, well, we don't think it is. But that is, what, that is an example of what we call a stricter domestic measure. Um, they, they are making an additional decision that says, even though we have an export permit from the country that is exporting this specimen, we're not going to let it in for reasons of our own. We don't feel satisfied that this is, that this is good for conservation or has created a appropriate benefit or whatever. That's not really what I was talking about in terms of what a country has to do when it's trading. Now, okay. because the United States is an importer, in this case, not an exporter. Now, an Appendix 1 
becomes different. See, Appendix 1 is the only appendix where species are supposed to be actually under threat before they can be listed. Now, a lot of species on Appendix 2 are under threat, don't get me wrong, but they must be threatened to be listed on Appendix 1. It's the, the language is that they must be threat, threatened with extinction and that they are or may be affected by trade. Now, in that case, you don't just need an export permit. You need an import permit. And as a matter of fact, you can't issue the export permit until you got the import permit. So for argument's sake, again, if I wanted to export a, an, a, an elephant tusk, Maybe that's not a very good example because there are other laws compared an Appendix 1 specimen of something else, uh, um, a chimpanzee, for argument's sake, from, say, a country like Uganda to the United States. I can't even issue my export permit until I've received an import permit from the United States saying, okay, we'll let it in. That permit cannot be issued unless the scientific authority of the United States makes a number of findings, and the most important finding that they have to make is that the import cannot be for a primarily commercial purpose. Okay, so you just highlighted how extremely important the permitting process is. That's the basis of the whole thing. The thing is that the thing is that that is what makes an Appendix 1 listing a trade ban. When we say it, 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 we say that they ban trade in ivory. What they are really saying is it, 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 that's a simple way of saying it. What's actually happened is the, the African elephant was transferred to Appendix 1, and Appendix 1 will not allow you to trade in something without an import permit, and you can't get an import permit if the trade is for primarily commercial purposes. So, in effect, that is what creates a ban on commercial trade in ivory. And that ban is entirely dependent on the importing country, because it doesn't matter why the exporting country is exporting the specimen. It only matters as to why the importing country is allowing it in. And if they say we want to let it in, they're in effect saying we've decided that in our country it's not going to be used uh, for commercial purposes. Now to give you an example where that created a bit of a fight. Uh, Some years ago, um, Namibia tried at two separate meetings of CITES to in effect redefine what commercial purposes meant by saying that well as long as we are using the money that we get by selling ivory or a trophy or something like that of a sighty species for conservation purposes, then you can't say it's commercial. And that we should make a, a change so we interpret it so that as long as we can show that we are using the money for conservation, it doesn't matter what it's being used for, where it's going, because that would mean it's not commercial. And it was pointed out to them that the treaty doesn't allow that because the only place the treaty talks about commercial purposes is the reason for granting the import permit. It's the purpose of the import. So the Namibian proposals were defeated. And that's a very important decision. This has brought something up and it's, it's a little bit of a segue, but maybe you can help us understand. So elephants, for example, we've talked about the ivory ban and the, the mechanism at, site, at COP17 to stop that. And we're going to talk about that more in a bit. But let's just segue a moment that elephants are listed both Appendix 1 and Appendix 2, depending on where they are. Mm-hmm. And how does this work in terms of the live animal itself? Okay. And there's, there's two things that come to mind. The um, export of el- baby elephants in... Zimbabwe to China, and the mm-hmm. import 
of the 18 elephants from Swaziland to U.S. zoos. Okay. Is this commercial? It well, is right. trade. It is commercial. It's the whole animal, not a part. All right. First of all, all right, this gets into a number of complicated issues. First of all, um, I should say that when you list a species under CITES, CITES has a definition of what a species is. It's not really the same as a scientific definition of what a species is. A species can be what they call a geographically separate population. It can be the population of elephants in a country. And uh, so that you can have specimens of animals in one country being Appendix 1 and then the next country over their Appendix 2. CITES allows for that. Now, back in uh, when the treaty was first um, signed, the Asian elephant was placed on Appendix 1, but the African elephant was placed on Appendix 2 because there were a lot of countries in Africa that wanted to continue trading in ivory. And um, the African elephant was not transferred to Appendix 1 until 1989. And that was a transfer for all African elephants. That was what created the international ban on the ivory trade. Now, in 1997 a number of Southern African countries succeeded in having their elephant populations put back on Appendix 2. That was a meeting that was actually held in Zimbabwe. And in fact, Robert Mugabe um, actually was quite instrumental. He called in favors from other countries around Africa, presidents. He'd just been elected head of the, uh, the, African, uh, the Organization of African Unity. And uh, a number of, of parties that, that, that came to the meeting ready to fight to stop any further ivory trade were overruled by their own governments. Um, I, I had an example of this myself that a, a very fine conservationist from Tanzania named Costa Malay, who's now passed on, unfortunately, uh, I found him literally in tears saying his government, he'd fought the ivory trade all his life and now his government had, had ordered him to support um, Zimbabwe. He was literally brokenhearted. So you can have these decisions made. As soon as you put it back in Appendix 2, then you can trade. Now, but it was put back on Appendix 2 with restrictions. Now, this is something that was developed really after the treaty was written. You can have a, what they call an annotation, um, a set of qualifiers to any listing. So in this case, the qualifiers said, well, here's what you, you, you can't just trade in any amount of ivory you like or any amount of live elephants you like. The live elephants have to go to what are called appropriate and acceptable destinations. The ivory went in a single shipment to Japan at, at that time. So, um, these annotations became uh, sort of governing rules as to how the listing would work. Now, this, the examples you mentioned, Swaziland and Zimbabwe, their elephant populations are on Appendix 2, not Appendix 1. So right. they don't have to be traded for commercial. The commercial purposes ban does not apply to them. That, that only applies to those populations of African elephant that are still in Appendix 1. Now, also, there has been a tendency to interpret a zoo as an educational or scientific rather than a non rather than a commercial facility, and so uh, exports to zoos are not normally stopped even for Appendix One species, uh, simply because the zoo's making money. That that's not considered to be the primary purpose. So that's that's sort of a, a, a that's a conversation. That's a whole other conversation. Well, that's a whole other in conversation. In terms of the shift of zoos from what they were a century ago to what they are now. Well, that's something totally different. But the point being that the elephants in Swaziland and the elephants in Zimbabwe could be exported, but, they, but the only restriction on their export 
were the restrictions on a normal Appendix 2 species, like they had to be legally acquired, they had to make a non-detriment finding, and also these annotations, which required that they had to go to places that were suitably equipped uh, to, to, to how, well, the, the phrase was appropriate and acceptable destinations. This was the actual wording they used. So now we can argue all day as to whether a, a, a wildlife park in China is an appropriate and acceptable destination for a baby elephant. There are a good many of us who think it certainly isn't, and in fact, a number of these animals have died. But again, you are now dealing with a situation where the government of Zimbabwe and the government of China have come to an agreement. They're the two trading partners. They're willing to allow it. It's extraordinarily difficult for other countries to come in and stop them. Um, they would have to do it by you know, diplomatic pressure, possibly some sort of sanctions if they could apply them, but um, or, by changing, or by changing or by yes, or by changing the CITES rules. And one of the things that was debated at this meeting and may still change in future was to say, okay, we need a better definition of what an appropriate and acceptable destination is for an elephant. Uh, there was an attempt to make it mean only a place in the native range of the animal where they were going to be released into, say, a national park or, or protected area, but that wasn't successful. So, so this is some uh, of the work that we have ahead of us and why, oh, once again, the importance of CITES, the treaty, um, the binding agreements of its members, and the, the two authorities that you mentioned, the well, management the authority and the scientific authority, and the changing landscape of our planet. Yeah, and the thing is that you have to understand that if we didn't have CITES, these countries could do anything they liked. I mean, CITES is at least making them jump through some sort of hoops. If CITES weren't there, there wouldn't be any hoops. Well, this, is, this has been absolutely fascinating, and we have barely begun to cover so much of the material that you and I had discussed. So once again, I would like our listeners to, I urge our listeners to pick up Ron's book, Ivory, Horn, and Blood, The Elephant and Poaching Crisis, and many of his other books. He's prolific, and he's um, an amazing and astonishing knowledgeable man, and has been participating in CITES since the 1980s. So unfortunately, today... We're out of time, but as I said, we didn't cover everything that we wanted to cover. There is a lot to discuss in terms of bans. So, Ron, I'm going to ask you right now, would you be willing to come back and continue this conversation and we can get into a lot more depth of not only your book and what it covers, but how bans work? Absolutely. That would be great. So, unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but audience, stick with us because Ron is coming back and he'll be my guest next week, and we're going to continue this incredible conservation. So, um, that's it for today. Ron, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And I look forward to picking up with you because we have a lot more to discuss. So, audience, listeners around the world, stick with us. Uh, This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World. My guest is Dr. Ron Orenstein. And next week, we're going to get into a whole other lively conversation. Thank you, and step out into our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week 
and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.